So we're going to speak this morning about the issue of forgiveness. This is, uh, we're working our way through the book of Luke. We have landed in uh, the Lord's Prayer, or actually the Disciples' Prayer in Luke. And we're on the passage where Jesus instructs them to pray, uh, forgive us our sins or our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. The issue of forgiveness is essential to who we are as Christians. Forgiveness defines who we are. We believe in redemption. We believe that we can have second chances. We don't buy into the cancel culture of our day where we dig up some picture or some email or some post that you made 20, 30 years ago, and we pull it out and beat you over the head with it and and drive you out of public society because of something you might have said 20 years ago. Um, We believe in redemption. We believe that you can be forgiven. We believe God is a forgiving God. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with our neighbors, our relationship in our families and in our marriages, all of these things are built on forgiveness. We are sinners. That's who we are. We're going to offend one another. We're going to say things. We're we're going to be sinners. That defines us. And so, the only way we're ever going to have good marriages, good relationships good families, good neighborhoods, is if we are forgiving to one another. And in this prayer, Jesus tells us to forgive. Now, let me mention right here at the outset that there are going to be a number of sermons on forgiveness. So when I'm done and you're like, well, wait a minute, you didn't say anything about, uh, don't worry, we'll We are going to revisit this next week and probably the week after that. Because this is so essential to our theology, this is so essential to who we are as believers, we need to think clearly and carefully. We're not going to cover all the facets of forgiveness and, and all of the various things then and the way that it defines us. So I don't want to have to beg your forgiveness for preaching for three hours on this this morning, so... So we're going to break it up into a variety of sermons, and we're going to take some time. This this is who we are as Christians. We are forgiving people. Now, what's interesting is forgiveness is the heart of the gospel. And, and, And I'm going to end with that today, by the way. I'm going to talk about how to get forgiveness. Well, we'll get there. Uh, But I want to start with the context in which this passage occurs. This is Luke chapter 11, but we'd only need to go back to the end of chapter 10 to see a pretty interesting exchange about eternal life. We know that how you get eternal life is you need to be forgiven. The only way to get eternal life is to actually have your sins forgiven. So there's this interesting exchange at the end of chapter 10, which is just a few verses. We're just looking at a few verses prior to this. And you'll remember this. Luke 10, verse 25. A lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, 
I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. It's, it's online if you want to see it. And, and most of you are here for that. So I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about all of that again. But notice that we're talking about eternal life and how you go about getting it. It's a really interesting answer Jesus gives him. Jesus says to him, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? I mean, what, you know, instead of arguing with the guy, it's like, well, well, what do you think? And the guy says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. So what does Jesus reply to him? Jesus says, uh, yeah, okay, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will have eternal life. If we're thinking about this, we're like, well, wait a minute. What about forgiveness? There's no forgiveness in this. Jesus never mentions forgiveness. This guy never mentions forgiveness. No one's even talking about forgiveness. This guy says, what do I do to get eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, what do you think? Well, I have to keep the law perfectly. There you go. You do that, and you'll have eternal life. Of course... The passage goes on, uh, instead of embarrassing the guy or instead of arguing with the guy, instead of even just kind of looking at the guy like, you know, uh, Jesus just kind of lets it hang there. And of course, the guy gets around to. Uh, He realizes that there's got to be more to it than this. And so he, it goes on and says, wishing to justify himself, says, well, who is my neighbor? Ah. And, of course, Jesus proceeds to give that great story about the good Samaritan. Why? Well, because the fact is, it's the gospel and our relationship with God is not well, we're perfect, so God loves us. It's actually anything but that. And yet this guy comes to God and to Jesus, and his approach to God and his question for Jesus is, well, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Obviously, I have to do something. And the answer is, actually, you don't. There's nothing you can do. Oh, okay, you want to know what you can do? Um, Well, what what does the law say? Love God with all my heart and love my neighbor like I love myself. There you go. You just do that and you're you're going to be all set. That's, in fact, what you actually have to do. And, of course, the answer is, particularly by the time Jesus has done the the story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan treats this total stranger like he's his own son. I mean, he just totally takes care of the guy. He leaves the innkeeper enough money to cover 30 days to stay at the inn. It's like, who in the world can possibly treat every stranger in need like that? No one can do that. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, right. That's that's Jesus' whole point. That's exactly right. If you want to know what you have to do to inherit eternal life, guess what? There's nothing you can do. Well, be perfect. Just be perfect. That's all. And, of course, the correct realization here is that, well, that's not possible. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's not possible. And so the gospel, what it circles back around to is this morning's discussion, which is this. You must have forgiveness. 
There is no salvation without forgiveness. If you want a right relationship with God, it's not based on what you do. It's not based on how good a person you are. You can't be good enough. Now, you would think that this would be fairly straightforward. You, you would think the average person would kind of get this. You would think that if you sat down and talked to your unsafe friends, relatives, neighbors, whoever, that you could kind of explain this to them and they would get it. Guess what? They don't. They, they, they don't get it. This guy is a perfect example of the natural man's approach to how this all ought to work. People naturally think that forgiveness is kind of secondary, or we just, well, we just assume God is going to forgive us. I mean, that's what he's in the business of, right? I mean, God, of course, forgives people. That's what he's supposed to do. Or we just kind of skip over it and think, well, murderers, bank robbers, they need forgiveness. But me, I don't, I mean, it's not like I really need forgiveness. I mean, I'm a nice guy. That's what we tend to think. And so when we come to the actual message of the gospel and we actually tell people they need to be forgiven, people resist that. They don't need to be forgiven. They haven't really done anything wrong. I mean, not really. I mean, okay, if, you know, telling a few lies and sure, but, you know, everybody's done some things wrong. I mean, if God's going to get that picky, I guess everybody's on their way to eternal condemnation. I, we'd actually have to agree with that. You know, you're right. Actually, everyone is on their way to eternal condemnation. That is the problem. We are sinners. We are sinners to the core. But the fact is that even as believers, if we're not careful, if we come at this question incorrectly, we can begin to think, well, you know, if you've ever really sat and thought about, and hopefully you have, if you sat and thought about eternal condemnation, you might actually start saying to yourself, wait, is it really proportional on God's part to take fallen people and for them to spend eternity under the wrath of God? Is that, should God really do that? Now, you might be sitting there thinking, oh, how, don't, don't even ask those questions. You know, let's just talk about that. Actually, we should ask those questions, and we should talk about that, because we have to wrestle with these things. We have to wrestle with these things, and we should wrestle with these things. It should grieve our heart that anyone ends up under the eternal condemnation of God. That shouldn't be something lightly just kind of like, oh, well, no. That is something that we should pray about. And we should, you know, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That should be our heart too. It's important, though, that very verse, God is not willing that any should perish. One of the things we have to think about And we have to, if we're going to go through this issue and we're going to come to a correct resolution to it, we need to understand that there is God's sovereign will about which we can do absolutely nothing. God's sovereign will is sovereign. God is the alpha. God is the omega. God has the beginning. God has the end. God 
starts everything and God is at the end of everything. And how it all starts is how God wants it to start and how it all ends is how God wants it to end. That is the sovereign plan of God. You can think of the sovereign plan of God as like a railroad track. I mean, it just goes where it goes. God's sovereign plan goes where it goes. But there's the moral will of God. And the moral will of God is like being on the train. You're on the train and maybe you're a good person on the train and Maybe you're doing the right thing, and maybe you're trying to follow what God wants you to do. Or maybe there are evil people on the train, and there are people who are doing all kinds of evil things. But the fact is, you can't get off the train. The train is going to go where the train is going to go. That's the world. And the sovereign will of God is we have the tree of life in the garden at the beginning, and we have the tree of life in the new Jerusalem as we launch off into eternity. But in between... Those two places, in between Eden and the New Jerusalem, in between the perfection of Eden and the perfection of the New Jerusalem, well, we have this, here we are. The sovereign will of God is never thwarted. The moral will of God, we thwart the moral will of God every single day. The moment that you don't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, the moment that you don't love your neighbor exactly as you love yourself, you're not doing the moral will of God. The moral will of God is reflected in the Ten Commandments. That's exactly where the moral will of God is revealed. And if we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, then we are breaking the moral will of God. Picture the moral will of God, and this is probably a poor illustration, but follow it anyway. Just it, It's making a particular point here. Don't read too much into this. The moral will of God, as, as we look at the garden and we look at how it all should have gone, it's kind of like, you know, the whole domino thing, right? Have you seen these? You go on YouTube and you watch a little domino falling, you know, and they set up, who knows, 1,000, 10,000. The, the world record, by the way, is 4.5 million, give or take, dominoes set up by a huge crew of folks. And you flick the one domino and... And out it all goes. But here's the thing. You know, you only need one domino to not fall. And massive amounts of this entire million domino display will, they'll never fall. They'll never come to pass. You only just need one domino out of whack. Uh, And if it's like the third domino, well, that's it. I don't care if you have, I don't care if you have four million of them out there. If the third domino doesn't fall over, Well, that's the end of that. There you go. Good for your world record. You got a whole three. This is like sin. God put this world together to be not only um, perfect outwardly, it was to, to be morally perfect. This is a world set up to be morally perfect. And the fact is it only took one sin to destroy it all. It's like the one match that burns down the entire city or the entire forest. The entire creation is cast into moral confusion with just one sin. It took one sin to just destroy the moral perfection of this world. And the day is going to come when God is going to restore 
the moral perfection of this world, the moral harmony of this world. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And guess what? Every single sin that everyone has ever committed, there's going to be a day of reckoning. Reconciliation. Now, you can have all of your sins reconciled this very morning. And you will be covered come that day. Or you can reject the offer of forgiveness that God gives you. And come that day, you can pay for your sin yourself. This is a very stark choice. And the world, part of our responsibility as believers is to convey to the world that a day of judgment is coming. And right now, your sin, you can have them all forgiven. Turn away from that and the whole world will be reconciled. Creation will be set right. All sin will, in fact, be paid for. All sin One way or the other, the punishment of God will fall either on Jesus, on your behalf, or reject the payment that Jesus made on your behalf and suffer your own sins. This is the choice that we have. We might think, maybe not us as believers, but the world might think, well, come on, everyone's a sinner. Surely God can't keep track of them all. That would be an incorrect thought. That, that God is, in fact, watching. There are any number of passages. Let me read you one. Psalm 50. The psalmist writes this. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sin and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought, God says, I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. The day of reconciliation is coming. You might think that you can sin and God doesn't really watch. God isn't, oh, oh, God is watching. And just because God doesn't rain his righteous wrath down on you the moment you step out of line doesn't mean he's not filling up the vessel of wrath with your name on it. Now, that vessel could be emptied out any time you want to come to God. The forgiveness is available at any moment if you'll come to God to get it. God is going to render to each person according to their deeds. This is exactly what Paul writes to the Church of Rome, Rome Romans chapter 2. Do you suppose... Oh, man, you who pass judgment on all of those supposedly evil people and you sit in judgment on them, don't don't you realize you do the same thing yourself? Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you just think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is supposed to lead you to repentance? The very fact that God isn't raining down wrath on your head right this very second is supposed to make you look to God and say, thank you so much for not raining your wrath down on me. It's not supposed to make you go, well, I guess God isn't paying attention so I can act even worse. He goes on and says in verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are simply storing up wrath for yourself 
and the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God when he will render to everyone according to their deeds. But forgiveness is available. That is the great message. You either look to the death of Jesus to forgive you, or you pay for it yourself. We need to stop for a moment and really think about God's perspective on this. We need to actually put ourselves in God's position as best we can to think godly, to think like God. I'm not sure we do that as much as we should. We need to look at the text, look at how God presents who he is, and appreciate it. When we go back to Genesis, we go back to the first couple of chapters, look how God created the heavens and the earth. You know, God could have simply created the whole thing with, a, with less than the wave of his hand. God could have just said, okay, there it is, and there it is. Without even waving his hand. God could have just said, all right, let's have it. And boop, just like that, it all pops into existence. The fact is, God, on our behalf, lays out for us that even with his omniscience and his omnipotence, even with all of the unquestioned ability of God to do anything that he wants, he chose to take six days to make the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh. And this place is pretty important to God. There is no record that God became any other being. There's no record that on any other planet there's any other sentient being. There is no record that God is in any way involved with any other life form on any other planet like he is on this one. God became a human. Jesus sits today in heaven in a human body. Jesus died on behalf of humanity. He didn't even die for the angels. There's no record of any of the angels repenting. There's no record that Jesus died for the angels. He died for humanity. I've said this before, I'll say it again. We need to be careful about getting our theology from Star Trek, right? There are no Vulcans out there, okay? There are no Klingons. The Romulans don't exist. It's just us. This is it. It's nice sci-fi, but there's no record of any of that. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. And he loves us. He is interested in this place, this time. Anytime we see the throne of God, what's going on there is a discussion about what's going on here. This is the world that God sent his only son to die for. And when God created this world, you look at right there at the beginning, and and you look at what God did, you When we read Proverbs and the personification of wisdom, wisdom says, I was there when God created. God created the skies and the oceans and all the various environments and the animals and the creeping things. And God created it all. And man himself, God created in his own image. This is the magnificent creation of God. God created it to bring glory to himself, and he made it perfect. Perfect. 
Just stop and think about that for a moment. Here's Adam and Eve. They're in the very garden of God, which, by the way, they were supposed to tend and expand it. Eventually, the garden would have taken up the whole earth. They were there in perfect conditions, perfect weather, perfect food. They were perfect. Just just stop and think about this was the original creation of God. The whole point of the creation of God. They were made with eyes. Why? So they could see untold beauty. I don't think we can even imagine how beautiful the garden was and how beautiful the earth was and, and how it looked in its original shape and form. The animals were perfect. Just think about this. There, there was no death. There was no decay. There was no disease. Nothing was marred. None, there, there were no predators. Everything you came across was there for your benefit. The entire environment, everything that existed was there to promote peace and harmony. Everything was there to work together to bring about the great glory of God. Think about the dominoes. We're not talking about a couple of million dominoes. We're talking about trillions times trillions times trillions of dominoes that God had completely set up to bring about honor and glory to himself. This is, this is the world. There's no sickness. There's no disease. There's no pandemic. There's no anger. There's no deceit. There's no jealousy. There's no malice, manipulation, wrath, no, no second motives, no, no one manipulating anyone. Adam and Eve's relationship to one another is, is so transparent, they don't even notice they don't have clothes on. They're not self-conscious at all. They have no self-consciousness. They are simply enjoying the world in which they live. This, they so love one another and they so love God. They have a literal personal relationship with God. These were, these were not too naive, not really all that intelligent, who weren't sure. Oh, no. These people had a relationship with God that we are never going to have until we get out of this place. They knew God. They walked with God. And they lived in perfection. Not just, not just the outward creation, moral perfection. They were without flaw. Can you imagine the perfect marriage? Perfect relationship with one another. Perfect. Adam loved Eve more than he loved himself, or at least certainly just as much. And she loved him just as much as she loved herself. They truly loved each other. And they both loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only time in the history of mankind that all mankind actually lived in that condition. What would it take? This, is, this, this was the world God created. It is set up to go forever. Look, all you, you two, all you've got to do is just do what God says. That's it. See that tree over there? Don't eat of it. How hard can this be? God set this up to make it as absolutely easy as possible. This is one thing you don't need to do. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you want to know what's good and you want to know what's evil, just come to talk to God, which, by the way, you're doing every day, and he will completely explain it to you. You, you can know. You can find out. And by the way, if you sin, we're down here at the dominoes, and we're only in the second or third domino. If you sin, 
the way this was supposed to all fall out is going to be completely different. There are going to be consequences. I created, God says, and designed you to what? To, to live forever in peace and love and to live forever and enjoy. I, I mean, just stop and just eating, right? I, I don't want to talk about that again too much. We did last week. But all of the fruits, all the, everything that was there, I mean, it was pleasing to the eyes. It, it tasted, I, I don't think, I think we even have taste buds anymore that can taste that stuff like God had originally intended. All of it, the whole, wherever they went, whatever animal they came across, insect they came across, whatever, whatever bird, or it doesn't matter whatever it was, it, it just loved them, served them, designed specifically for their benefit. And you know what? They deliberately chose to ruin it all. Nah, I think I'd rather decide what's good and evil all on my own. I don't really need God. So let me just, yeah, you know, Satan shows up. How long does this take? I mean, we get, we get the conversation, right? What, 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes? I mean, how long of a conversation does, does Satan have with Eve before she just decides, you know, you're right. God is holding out on us. I'm not sure God really does love us. I mean, my goodness. I, I, I mean, God does want us to be wise, right? So, and, and it's a tree to make it wise. And it, it does look pretty good for food. And we're supposed to eat it for food. Eve just talks herself right into this. Adam, he's not deceived at all. But, you know, the thoughts of making up my mind for myself sounds pretty good to me too. And so God creates this world in which sentient beings have choices. This is the choice that they made. And do you know what they did when they did that? They completely destroyed the world that God had put together. They destroyed it. They morally corrupted the whole world. We look at the world, and, and you know where earthquakes and pandemics and death and disease and violence and selfishness and immorality, and wickedness, and covetousness, and all of these things, where do they all come from? Well, uh, we choose to do them. We choose to do them. We choose to violate the moral will of God. We take the things that God created to be perfect and to bring honor and glory to him, and we turn them into devices for our wickedness. We breathe God's air, and drink God's water, and walk on God's ground, and curse the name of God. What do you think God thinks of that? I mean, what, what, do, what do you think God's perspective is on that? Do we think that God is like, well, you know, boys will be boys. I mean, you know, you think? We who drink iniquity like water? That's who we are. So, so what do you think God thinks when we take his unique and special and marvelous creation and we, we eat the food to energize us so that we may curse God with more vigor and commit acts of wickedness. Well, we know, right? Yeah. Another very, very well-known parable. Mark chapter 12. He began to talk to them. He gave them this parable. So a man plants a vineyard. 
and he puts a wall around it, and he digs a vat, and, and under the wine press, and he builds a tower, and he rents it out to vine growers and went on a journey. So he, so he set it up really nice. He set this thing up beautiful. He takes this vineyard, and he, and he provides everything necessary for this vineyard to operate great. Sound familiar? Yeah. God creates the world and sets it up to operate great, and he puts Adam and Eve in there. He puts us in there. He sets it all up and says, okay, here it goes. And, of course, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. I mean, yeah. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent others, and they wounded them and treated them shamefully. And, and some they wounded, and, and some they killed, and they beat them. And so, of course, he, he finally says, here's what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. Surely they will respect and honor him, right? This is God's perspective. If you have people look at you and like, well, I don't need forgiveness. Are you out of your mind? Have you not stopped for just a moment and thought about God's perspective on how this is all going? We are destroying his world with every sin. Every selfish act, every time we look out for our interests and not the interest of others, every time we, we do what works good for us and tough luck for everybody else, we might think that those actions don't have any kind of ramifications. Oh, oh, yes, yes, they do. You plant those actions and they grow. There are consequences to our sinful actions. There are consequences to everyone's sinful actions. And the day is going to come when they're all going to be accounted for. One way or the other, either Jesus will have paid for them, and of course his death potentially paid for all of them, but it's only going to be appropriated to those who come to Jesus and ask. So he says, I'll send my son, and of course we know what happens. They send his son, and they say, this is the heir, let's let's kill him. And the vineyard will be ours. Which you would think, you're like, okay, you really think the owner of the vineyard is somehow going to what? Give it to you after you kill his own son? You you guys are really not thinking clearly here, right? That is not how this works. You kill this guy's son, there are going to be other things that are going to happen. And of course, Jesus asks, what do you think the owner of that vineyard will do? What do we think God is going to do to those of us? which, by the way, includes every person on this entire planet, when we misuse the great gifts and the marvelous things that God has given us, and we use them to further our own ends and to bring glory to ourselves and to puff ourselves up and to help our prideful view of the world in which we are the center of the world and everything ought to work to our benefit instead of God's. What do we think God's going to do about that? Since we've appropriated all of his stuff for ourselves, as much of it as we can anyway, And if we have to lie, cheat, and steal, well, this is who we are. What do we think God thinks of that? This is God's world. Well, here, Jesus tells the parable. This is exactly what God thinks about it. What do you think God's going to do? Well, he's going to show up and he's going to destroy the vine growers. He's going to give the vineyard to others. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day of getting everything straightened out. 
Imagine you're at a, at a big banquet, right? And there's, a, there's this huge cake out there. And uh, the, whatever it is, wedding, doesn't really matter. But so you're at this event, and there's this huge cake. And, okay, it's time for dessert, you know? And they, and they cut it all up, and they put it on all the little plates, and they hand them all out. And they're like, don't, don't, don't eat any of it yet. And just before they, they do whatever they're going to do to get everybody to eat it, the cook stands up and says, you know, you should probably all know that uh, while I was making this cake, you know, um, there were some... There's some things that fell into it that, um, who knows what, you know, I'll let your imagination go on what might have fallen into the cake. I could provide a number of things, but I'm, I'll, I'll forego. Um, not much, just a little bit. How many of us would all decide that, you know, maybe cake is, I, I'm full, thank you, thank you so much. I'm, I don't care if it was just, you know, one, whatever it was. Uh, I, I, no cake for me, thanks. This is how sin is. You have this perfect creation of God. And one sin, it just destroys the whole thing. This is the world in which we find ourselves in. We're awash in a world with selfishness and rebellion. And we get to the place where it's so awash with it that we start thinking those are virtues, right? Selfishness, why that's... That's just rugged individualism. That's all that is. I'm just looking out for number one. I mean, somebody's got to look out for number one. And uh, rebellion, well, that's just free thinking. I mean, we need to be free thinkers, right? I mean, after all, we, we take sin and make virtues out of it. This is the world we live in. God is watching. And what we need is forgiveness. We need forgiveness. The moment is going to come when this world is going to be completely destroyed. Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Then the earth and all its works will be burned up. Since all these things are going to be destroyed, what kind of person ought you to be? A forgiven person. You see, God sent his son to die that we might Be forgiven. He paid the price that when the moment comes that it's all restored, it's because Jesus paid for it all. And those who will simply come to Jesus, today, your sins can be completely forgiven. Just come and ask for forgiveness. Have humility. Admit that you need to be forgiven. Don't come to God and say, well, I don't know, I'm I'm good enough. We're not. Don't come to God and say, well, everybody's a sinner, so I guess he's just going to let it go. He's not. We need forgiveness. And God, by the way, offers forgiveness, which is exactly what Jesus is telling us to pray. Forgive us. That's that's what the prayer is. Forgive us. And even as believers, we need the daily cleansing, right? We need a daily restoration of our relationship with God. Maybe we have asked, and surely I and hope that, that most, if not all of us, have in fact asked Jesus to forgive us. And he has. But it's okay to come to God and to confess our sin. And we should do that with some regularity. Make sure the relationship is good. And that, we're, that there's a clarity with us and God as our Heavenly Father. God is forgiving We should ask God to forgive us, and he will. 
Let's pray. Lord, we are unworthy to have you forgive us of the least of our sin. And yet, you forgive us of all our sin. Lord, this is your world, and we do tend to live down here like it's ours. We're just borrowing it for a little bit. We're just passing through. May we be good stewards of what you have given us. May we use the things we have to bring honor and glory to you. May our lives be used for your benefit and your behalf. May we be people who speak your truth. Help us, Lord, to talk about forgiveness, how we need it, and how the people around us, they need forgiveness too. Lord, may the gospel go forth from our lips with regularity. May we speak it in a way that people will be drawn to you and drawn to seek forgiveness. Give us wisdom, and if any have not gotten this forgiveness, may this be the morning to come to you and ask. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.